What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Hine is the founder and CEO of eatloco.org. After 22 years of commercial digital marketing, advertising, and promotional success in Loudoun County, Dan conceived of Eat Loco in 2015. Dan's passion was to use his marketing skills and the backing of his successful marketing firm to promote healthy eating and living in Northern Virginia. In 2016, Eat Local began partnering with Loudoun County farmers and farmers markets to provide free marketing services. Dan's demonstrated success at the markets and the improved financial well-being of partner farmers resulted in the 2017 development of Eat Local Marketplaces. A self-acknowledged city boy, Dan's professional knowledge and management approach are the powerhouse behind Eat Loco's success in the rapid expansion of our marketplaces and helping the farmers and venues achieve aggressive business goals. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Glad to be here. I'm thrilled to talk about this today. I, I think your small business is truly unique in important ways, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about how you built this company from quite literally nothing. In your own words, tell us about Eat Loco, the name, and what you're doing. Well, first of all, the name comes from the name is kind of a triple entendre. I've always said it's a Eat Loco. Loco stands for Loudoun County, which is the county we live in. It's Spanish, so we think like to think that means eat like crazy. And it also means local, like local, because we're really trying to support local. We did start this back in 2017. Late 2017, there were a handful of vendors already at the One Loudon Market, which is where we started. It was run by another company. Uh, we talked to One Loudon about kind of taking that over and growing it, and we did. So we took it from half a dozen vendors to close to 80 vendors this past year. So we're now at One Loudon and we're at Brambleton, and both markets are going really well. But we, our goal is to take what used to be kind of your father's farmer's market, if you will, into a 21st century farmer's market. And what that means to us is the way, in our opinion, to get more traffic to farmers and to help farmers even more is by bringing some of these offshoot vendors, you know, vendors that are selling maybe artisan vendors or juices or breads or things like that, where they're not necessarily farmers, but they're local businesses. And we want to help them. And by bringing them in, they bring their own traffic and that ends up helping our farmers. So we've become kind of the market that people want to get into. We get about, I'd say, between 15 and 20 applications every week for people that want to come in. One Loudon has been gracious enough to give us well, we don't, they don't give it to us. We pay for it. But a really nice chunk of land uh, at One Loudon that's very visible from Route 7. And the outcome has been tremendous so far. That's very cool. And of course, people not familiar with Loudoun County might not really understand how precious land is here and how quickly it's disappearing. So I agree with you. When I go to your market, I can see you from a major road. But when I get in there, it's an intimate experience and it's a fabulous location. Right. Thank you. Yep, it sure is. 
So pre-COVID, your markets were teeming with happy families looking for fresh, healthy food, along with a fun outdoor experience. But I think other businesses and other business owner listeners will benefit from understanding the impact of COVID on your business and how you're managing it. Yeah, so this is tricky. A lot of people believe that businesses kind of make up their own rules. They get mad at restaurants, they get mad at grocery stores, and they get mad at farmers markets for having rules laid out that we're trying to follow. And what they don't understand is that we follow them, despite what our opinion is, we follow them because that's what the governor tells us to do. And no matter what side of the fence we fall on politically, he says, if you don't follow these rules, you shut down. So if I shut down because I don't want to follow his rules by putting a mask on, then 80, uh, more than 80, because we've got two markets. So 120, 130 vendors are out of business because this is the only place they can sell. So my, what I tell people is I say, hey, if the governor says we all wear pink shirts, guess what? We're all going to wear pink shirts. That's the way it is. Doesn't matter how I feel. I've been threatened at our market before. I have, I remember last year we had a, during the, the summer, we had a new vendor that was selling chicken sandwiches and she bought me one and she said, here, I'd like you to try it. And I pulled down my mask, tried it for two minutes and somebody snapped a picture and put it on Facebook and said, this is how the owner of the Eat Local Markets handle his farmer's markets. And I'm, you know, so there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And the, the governor gives his rules to the Virginia Department of Agriculture. Virginia Department of Agriculture shoots them down to the Virginia Farmers Market Association, which is kind of where we get our guidance from. So we have a lot of people that go to bat for us and we're very fortunate, but there's people don't understand in the education about COVID period is very confusing. And when it comes to a farmer's market, they feel that this should be a, a safe zone and they shouldn't, sometimes they think they shouldn't have to wear a mask. And it's kind of our job to say, yes, please do, because we want to stay open. Well, Dan, I, I really want to put a little bit of a fine point on that because you're bringing up a small business concern, which could be applied to many different businesses. So let's just go back through the food chain to use a, a fun metaphor here. Just if you're shut down, go back through who's affected until you get to the consumer, which is your end game. Hopefully they're having a great experience and a great product when they go there. But aside from them losing out, if you shut down, go back through everyone else that that loses when a small business doesn't get to participate in the world going forward. Well, probably I'll shoot to the very end of the very top, I guess, is the farmer is going to fail. And a farmer, it's harder to come back as a farmer from a farmer's perspective. Losing business is way harder than you or I losing business during COVID. So it's way harder for them to come back than it is anybody else. One of the sad things about Loudoun County, sad things about anywhere is, you know, if a farmer's having a hard time, you know, feeding his family and, you know, paying his bills and paying his taxes and paying his taxes on his land and, and mortgage and everything else, and he's having a problem with that because he can't sell because of COVID and a developer comes along and says, hey, I'll buy everything from you for, you know, $50 million he's going to say, okay. And then we wonder why farmers markets or farmers are going away. Well, they're struggling. And like I said in the beginning, everything we do is for the farmer. It doesn't look like that, but I know in my heart of hearts, that's where I'm coming from. So you're right. There's a lot of businesses that would go out of business, especially commercial kitchens. They will start hurting because that's where people are preparing their food. I can't think off the top of my head, but there's, you're right. There is a whole chain of, of businesses that would suffer if our markets got shut down or if any market 
catch up. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's it, the ripple effect, right? We only see that as a consumer, we don't get to go to the farmer's market that day. And we forget that beyond that, there is a huge ripple of people that are affected. So I really appreciate you putting a fine point on that. Now, in spite of setbacks, you've persevered and you have two locations and you are open all year round, which is, I think, a little different from any farmer's market. So tell us what's coming in 2021 and beyond. Well, I'd like to retire sometime in the next <laughs> 20 or 30 years, but uh, or actually the next five years. But so I don't want to get too crazy, but we do have two markets and I don't run them myself. I'm not there physically running them, which is good. I've got three market managers that kind of swap back and forth and run the markets for me. So that's kind of nice. As far as what we're looking at is my dream at the beginning of 2020, very early pre-COVID was to make our one Loudon market, what I call a mega market. And that's 100 plus vendors. And we ended up with 80. And I kind of held it at that because I didn't know what COVID was going to bring. I didn't know. I heard so many different stories from our governor, what was going to happen. And I just didn't want to put more people in jeopardy by saying, you're in, now you're out, you know, that kind of thing. So I held it at 80, talked to our vendors. Um, We have a really great, I have a really great relationship with all of our vendors, which separates me, our market from all the other markets. I have every single one of their cell phone numbers on my cell phone. I can call their home number if I have it. I can call them at any time and they know they can call me at any time. So, you know, I've talked to all of them. I told them, you know, it's risky for us to be there. We're going to stay there as long as we can. And they kind of get that. So I would love to turn this into a mega market. That's just kind of a personal goal of mine. It'll help even more people. And the more vendors you have, the more customers that come out. And I'm also, we're kind of playing with the idea of opening up two other markets One's in Virginia, I can't tell you where, and the other one's in Maryland, and I can't tell you where. But those are things that could come here in the next couple of months. Very exciting. And I have clients moving back to Maryland, so I know that they're, and we have other clients already there, so I know they're going to be really interested in that. And this is not your first business. So I was hoping that COVID might help the world know that statistically, you know, small business, understanding the value of small business and understanding that value better. But we know that statistically, many businesses have suffered in this time period, and most people are happy to hand Amazon and other large companies all their business and trade for you know sitting on the couch to be able to buy. What's your view on the challenges of starting and growing a small business? I think that you know some of the challenges, I'll start with that first. You know, vacations are harder to take. Personal time is harder to find. You know, heading out for the weekend is is sometimes impossible, especially when you have markets on the weekend. But I think the biggest challenge is your personal relationship with your spouse. And it can either go really, really well or really bad, I think. Or maybe there's something in the middle. Fortunately for me, my wife is an angel. And um, she and I have a great, we both own businesses that are not similar. She has a marketing company. Eat Loco is basically a marketing company where we have farmers markets. So, and I've owned a marketing company for over 25 years. So we can bring questions to each other. And we do all the time about, hey, what would you do in this situation? Cheryl tends to take the high road more than I do. <laughs> so it's nice to kind of have somebody level me off sometimes, especially if I'm upset about something. It's hard, but we both say this on probably a monthly basis, at least once a month, is we wouldn't have it any other way. We hear about it's more challenging when you're working for corporate America, I think, because there's a good chance they can say, nah, you're gone. Nah, we're going to lay you off. Nah, we can't use you anymore. Whereas for us, for me, if I see my business, if I see my numbers start to go down, I can make adjustments to hopefully bring it back up again. You know, COVID was probably the hardest thing that'll ever hit our markets. 
and I feel like we our sales numbers are up 40%. I track sales numbers very closely at our markets, and we're up 40% at this time last year. So I feel really good about that, and I couldn't see working for another company anymore. It's just there's too many pros to running your own company, I think. So you should feel good about that because that's not a small feat at all. And I love the optimism I hear in your voice. I feel like the small business owners are the most optimistic population we have, and we don't want to lose that, I don't think. Right. We're going to come back to the personal stuff in just a few minutes because I do think that's so key to success. But right now, I want to focus on technology, which is everywhere today. Your favorite thing. My favorite thing this morning, what what the listeners don't know is my computer restarted almost exactly when we were supposed to start this interview. So, so today's not my favorite technology day, but I do love technology. But what technology do you depend on in your business and what happens in your business that technology will never be able to take over? I think we've talked a little bit before or a couple minutes ago about that I've owned three different businesses and every one of them was based on solely on technology, you know, marketing company and apps that we use to develop things and logos and websites and social media and all that stuff. And before that, it was an IT company. So obviously that's technology. I use technology for the markets, but very, very simple technology. I use a Google spreadsheet to keep track of all the vendors. We have a, an app called Manage My Market that I don't like very much, but it's like the most popular app for vendors to find me. For, uh, to be able to sign up. So, so I, I pay that and I use that. But the thing that technology can't replace is, as I mentioned before, my relationship with vendors. So if the internet blew up today and computers were no longer useful, I can still run my business. And that is one of the things that I really like. I like that my company is not dependent on almost anything. It's dependent on one loud and being there every week. And so far they've come through with that. And Bramilton is there every week. And so far they've come through with that as well. So as long as those two locations don't move, which I'm pretty sure they won't, I'm in really good shape to, if I had to give up technology, I would. And I mean, cell phones, that would probably bug me a little bit if that went away, but I can go to the market and I can talk to every single business owner, every single market vendor that I want and get from them whatever I need. You know, you mentioned something in there that I wasn't planning on focusing on too much, but I think it's so key. The fact that you have owned other businesses and they were successful, but this is geometrically more successful and you're enjoy you're loving it so much. Can you just talk to how people who start small businesses often end up in a different small business than the one they first started. And that's because you learn. So can you just talk to that a little bit about what, how those other companies informed your success today? Yeah. So I think that before I started this, I'm pretty sure I had never set foot in the farmer's market. I'm not sure if I've ever been in one in my life before 2017. I owned a marketing company and I did not plan on, I'd never sat down and said to my wife, hey, I think I want to start a farm. That never came up. But it, things do kind of morph, right? The whole reason that we got started in the first place was that we actually went to the current farmer's market entity that's in Loudoun County, who owned five markets at the time and said, hey, we'd like to pay it forward. We would like to market you. You know, Eat Loco uh, was a web page. It was not a site or a you know, it wasn't its own company. It was just a page that we had. We wanted to get Loudoun County to eat local and eat healthy. And we went to them and said, hey, we'd like to do this. We'd like to just pay it forward. It won't cost you a dime. Uh, it's just we want to do that. And they they shot us down flat. 
And to this day, that was four years ago. To this day, I shake my head like, I don't understand why you would do that. So I left their board meeting a little bit irritated. And I said, you know what? I think I'm just going to, I'm going to start one myself. I mean, how, how hard could that be? Pain <laughs> <laughs> up last words. <laughs> yeah, here we are four years later and, you know, a hundred and, you know, during the regular season, close to 200 vendors count on us every single week. So it is interesting how things kind of morph, but you know what? I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you before, Bonnie, but this is like, it's like the best business I've ever owned. This is the happiest that I've ever been in my life. And I just so irritated that it took 60 years to get here. Some people never get here. So I'm going to, I'm going to look at it that way. Yeah. You and I share that. I, I love what I'm doing and it took me most of my life to get here, but here we are. So yay. Something I noticed on your website, which I thought was interesting. I'd just like a little bit more detail on you partner with other small businesses under the tab called goodies on your website. Why is that important? Uh, the partnering and what you're doing there? It's important because there we look at them as influencers and we are very much a word of mouth organization, a farmer's market. So people come there because not because they like Eat Loco, but they know that we organize and run a very solid, very clean, very organized market of really, really great vendors. So anything that we can do to get that word out, if I can partner with Microsoft, who's got 20 billion followers, that would be awesome because now I can reach that many more people. So partners are really, really important to us. On top of that, our venues, like I said before, One Loud and Brambleton have been great. They promote us as well. That's really the key, the secret sauce, if you will, to making anything successful. As a marketer, I would tell anybody that find influencers, find groups on Facebook that you can post about your stuff that have, you know, the foodies group, for example, Andrew Samples, a friend of mine, I talk to him all the time about that group and how he's growing it. And, you know, we can promote something in there and bam, it's out to, and he's got 100,000 people on there, I think. So partners are really, really key for us and we love working with them. So. That's really uh, interesting. And I think that's great um, tips for other business owners. So switching gears a little bit, our listeners know that our firm specializes in helping people navigate their finances when they are going through a major life change. And one of those is divorce. And you and I have both lived through divorce. It's definitely a transformation. How do you view that period of life today in the rearview mirror? And what might you share with others that are facing that transformation? I think that I what I learned is that I don't know everything. You know, when you have two different wives that tell you that, you know, you learn. <laughs> Might be something there. <laughs> I guess, you know, one of the biggest things that I learned from my marriages that I take with me every day is that I never want to be afraid to say I'm sorry because to, and this is to a vendor or to my wife or to my family. If I feel that I'm anywhere near at fault or have any fault in the situation at all, by saying I'm sorry, it makes everything go away. I mean, it seriously does. Somebody does something to wrong me and they apologize to me, literally, I will forget about it in 30 seconds. But if they don't, I will take it with me to my grave. And it is so true. Just try it next time. Next time your husband, you do something wrong, and I know you don't ever do anything wrong, but if you did something wrong to your husband, say you're sorry and watch what happens. A, he's going to be thrilled and give you a great big hug or and on top of that you're going to just go oh my god I just I feel so much better and I I can't carry that around anymore it's way easier for me to apologize and on top of that it's thanking people and really thanking them for things that they've done or gone out of their way to 
to help you. And I have so many of those people in my life. I can't even, you know, it starts with my wife. It probably ends with my wife, but everything in between are, are people that have I've met along the way that just want to help us or they want to help the markets or they want to help me personally. I just, I think a lot of that came from having a bad marriage or two. Yes. Well, I'm glad. I love the idea of learning. I, we always say to people, if you take your same self, it's always two people. No matter how much I'd like to always put it on the other person, it's always two people. You just have to figure out what your part is. And once you figure that out and you learn from it, you take that new person, that new improved person into the new relationship. And you are remarried to one of the finest women I know. She told me that too. <laughs> Good for her. We love confidence. And, you know, when she changed her name, her first initial and your last name spells shine. And she was already a shining person, but it just describes her perfectly. It's such a cute thing when I see her email come up. But what does it really mean to have a supportive, loving partner? And it do you agree that picking a partner is a financial decision because of the support? Oh my gosh, it, it completely is. I don't know what I would do without the support of my wife. I don't know, you know, if, again, going back to what I was saying before, if I go to her with an issue or something, I just need another set of eyes. I feel like she's really invested in me and really invested in my problem and makes, she makes my problem become her problem, at least for five or 10 minutes while she's talking about it. And then she, I'm sure she goes back to her stuff. But it's like having an unpaid partner. To me, that's what it is, because she knows the vendors. I can say the name of a vendor. She'll say, oh, that's the flower vendor or that's the jelly vendor. Right. And I'll say, yeah. And it goes both ways. And I try to do the same with her. I don't know her clients as much because she doesn't talk about them. And I talk about mine all the time. But something that if it went away tomorrow, I seriously don't know what I would do. It's been such a big part of my life. I was telling her this last night and she was kind of laughing. It's funny because we talk about business and personal and we, I love to say that we cut off at five o'clock and we never talk about business, but that's not the truth. That'd be a lie, but we do intermix it enough with personal. So it doesn't get in the way. And sometimes not very often we'll say, you know, what, we just not talk about business anymore. Not very often, but that will happen. But one of the things I think is the funniest thing is I could be talking to her about some kind of issue with somebody or something that's going on. I'm thinking about writing an email, but I'm not sure. And we'll be talking about it right up to the time that we go to bed, right to the time that we're actually laying in bed, head on our pillow, covers up, eyes closed. And I will say, babe, so you think I should send her an email? She'll say, yep. I'll say, okay, good night, good night. <laughs> so that's how that's how bad it can get. But it's kind of a no rules. There's no real rule. You kind of write the rules as you go. And and when you're with somebody like her, she's got not only is she a great person, but she's got an incredible business mind. And she doesn't think so, but it doesn't matter because I do. She's just modest. She does. She's been a successful businesswoman for decades. And yeah, I agree with you. Now, something else that I hadn't told you I would ask you about, but I do want to just uh, get your information, especially the perspective of a man on this. We have a lot of clients who are scarred somewhat by their previous marriage and are not 20 when they're going back out into the world to find a new partner should they desire one. We all make grown-up choices when we have lived with someone for a while before and now we're back out in it, but we're not a teenager anymore. What could you tell other people about, you know, how you were thinking about, maybe you weren't even looking for a spouse, but how do you feel about people who are afraid to get back out there you know, meeting someone doesn't mean you have to marry them. So what are your thoughts about that? 
I think that if you're thinking about partnering with somebody either from a business front or a personal front, I think you have to kind of gauge the way they have conversation. If they're an egomaniac or if they're a narcissist and if the conversation always leads back to them, then I would be worried because I like, you know, as I'm watching you, you you and I are on a video chat, even though no one will see this video. I can see that you're listening the whole time. You're not always reading something else. You're not writing a lot. You're listening. And to me, that is a huge trait in anybody. If it's a vendor, I call our vendors vendor partners because I feel like they're a part of this business. So when our vendor partners, when I'm talking to them, I can tell in the first five minutes if I'm going to have a good relationship with them or a bad one. And I think, you know, people say that all the time. Oh, I could tell in the first five seconds if I like them or not. Well, in the first five minutes, I can tell if I want to work with them or not. And I think that's key. And I think that even picking a spouse, I mean, you don't want the conversation to always go back to them. You want them to stick with what you're asking about or telling them about. And and when they get involved and they start asking questions about your problem, well, what about this? Have you thought about this? Then you go, you know what? I appreciate that. I just, you know, you can give me bad. And the other thing it does is it makes it easier to hear when they're going to tell you something bad. If they say, you know, Cheryl has said this to me many times. I'll write emails that are just did not take the high road at all. I won't send it and I'll show it to her. She's like, yeah, you're not sending that. <laughs> you're absolutely right. But very rarely does she say something. She can say something negative, trust me, but it doesn't necessarily hurt my feelings because she has, I use this expression all the time. She probably hates it, but I use the expression money in the bank. She's got a lot of money in the bank with me. She's got so much that she could take withdrawals all day long and she'll never deplete it. And I think about that all the time with her. So I think you're also highlighting character and values, right? Those things that are shared and it takes time to learn those about people. So part of the fun, putting that in air quotes of getting back out there is there are good people everywhere. You just need to get out there to see who they are and where they are. Yeah. And you, you got to look for the triggers that tell you that they are not. Right. And pay attention. A nice smile and a nice haircut is not it. <laughs> not the end of the story for sure. Now, you guys are a blended family as are Murray and I, and uh, we always say there's <laughs> its own special challenges, but any tips on becoming a blended family that you can share without irritating your blended family? I do. Um, <laughs> so I've, the pendulum has swung both sides for, for me on this. So my previous marriage, my wife had two children and it ended our marriage. It was the absolute reason that it ended, that our marriage ended which is fine because I wouldn't have met my current wife if that hadn't happened. But I kind of look at it, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't mean to compare it to dogs, but I'm going to for a second. Cheryl and I both came to this marriage. We've both been married. We've been married now for just under five years. We both came to the marriage with a dog. And I love my dog, and she loves her dog. But we don't have the same love for each other's dog. And it's weird. And I want to, and I care for her dog. I don't want it to die or anything like that. And I don't, you know, I don't mistreat it or anything. And I give them treats at the same time, you know, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, my dog is my dog and her dog is her dog. And I think it's the same with kids. Her kids are, I mean, you've met them, Bonnie. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're incredible, smart, independent, good head on their shoulders kids. And they're in their One's in his mid to late twenties, and the other one's thirty or thirty-one. Or he'll be thirty-one this year. And I have a—I feel like I have a good relationship with them. I can text with them. I can pick up the phone and call them. I can now call one of their girlfriends. I can talk to her if I want at Christmas time or whatever. And that's really great. 
And I love that. And there's, in my opinion, I'm not sure why it turned out so great. And Cheryl and I kind of talk about it sometimes and think that it's because we married later in life to each other. And by then the kids were almost grown and gone. So, or they were. I think there's something to that. Yeah. So I didn't have to. One of the advices that I can give to people, especially to guys, is don't try to be the father. And as soon as you try, especially if the father's in the picture, do not try to be the father. You will lose every time. And my previous marriage, I didn't try to be that. I I knew that advice already, but it still didn't work out. But I think that you're fighting an uphill battle by trying to just force yourself into a family. Just kind of let it happen. Be their friend. Give good advice to keep them safe. And I think everything will work out great. But my wife's relationship with my daughter is, again, it's Cheryl. So what do you think? Right, right. Yes. And I, I know through you a little bit about your daughter and uh, I look forward to getting to know her better over the years. She's, uh, from what I know, is an outstanding young woman as well. And I think the points that you're bringing up are really important. So you create some boundaries that are respected. You come with an open heart and an open mind and it takes time. Yeah, it does take time. And, and yeah, and if you rush it, it will fall flat. It is. And what's interesting is I have seen friends and family go into blended marriages thinking, oh, I got this. Oh, they love me. Oh, their daughter, her da- his daughters love me. And I'm like, do not go in with that. Do not go in with that. I'm telling you. And it fell flat every single time. So uh, somebody needs to publish a book on that, Bonnie. I'm not saying it should be you, but it should probably be you. <laughs> well, I'd have to get a lot of other people involved, but you know, I'm not dead yet, so I, it could happen. So, you know, Dan, I want to eventually get to the subject of money because that's really where we focus so much of our time and it touches every part of every life. However, before we get there, you have lived, you have made tough choices that you could have kept more comfortable choices in your life. And for your own reasons, you didn't. So what story can you share with our listeners about how you know that this, your daily life and your life is just not a dress rehearsal? So I love this question. I think this question is so deep and so personal that I really like it. So I appreciate you asking it. So I, first of all, I, I feel it in my gut and I have never had that feeling before. I donate more financially and emotionally than I ever have in my life. I, you know, one of the things that I love doing at our market, which is kind of silly, but it makes me feel good is I see, you know, 20 people standing in line ready to buy hot cocoa because it's freezing out or a cup of coffee and I'll buy for the entire row. And to me, that might cost me 60 or $70, but that is huge marketing. I've done marketing for too long. Those 12 people will tell people that will tell people. And to me, that's really inexpensive marketing. But selfishly, it makes me feel so good to do that because they're shocked. They're shocked that I bought them a $3 cup of coffee. I buy breakfast for my vendors every once in a while which is a little bit more expensive, but it keeps them there and it keeps them coming back and I make my living off of them. So, and I'm less stressed than I ever have been in my life. And I, I give a big part of that to my wife, but I also attribute a big part of that to the decisions that I've made in the last four or five years. I think it's the balance that I have in my life. You know, I've, I've had a life with no money. I've had a good, a decent life, but I had no money. I've had a good life. I've had lots of money with a bad life and I've had no life and no money. And now I have life and decent money. And that is how I know in my gut that this is not dress rehearsal. Thank you for that. That's I think that that sharing is really key for people to hear, especially from a gentleman. So I appreciate that. 
So switching gears again, we think many, like we're just obsessed with the idea that most conversations do have a money component and uh, whether its impact is good or bad on, the, on whatever we're talking about. So if we tie this back to small business, I feel like many people don't understand the kind of capital it takes to build and run a business. And you've been a serial business owner. Have you had any positive or negative experiences with getting the capital you need? Quick answer is no. And I say that because I've never gotten capital. I've never started a business that needed it. I like to live within my means. I really, really do or below them. But I, I've always taken a look at my bank account and said, this is how much I got. Let me see what I can start. Let me see if I can morph it into something that I can actually run. I've also found that running a business where it's either just me or me and contractors, or maybe me and one other employee is really my sweet spot. Having a big company where I needed $10 million capital is, is just not for me. I don't want to either get in my later years or retirement or even death knowing that I have a lot of overhead that has to be paid off and I don't want to leave anybody with that. And you know, if I had to shut down today, there's nothing I have to pay off. And that gets me through every single day. It makes me sleep at night. I have a car payment right now that bothers me. But I just don't want to have, you know, I think about these restaurants that are either close to going out of business or trimming way back because of COVID. And I feel horribly, horribly rotten. It makes me just ill. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things that we're working on at One Loudon is to open up our market to allow all the restaurants in One Loudon to set up tents and to either hand out pre-made meals or gift certificates or sell gift certificates or whatever as just a freebie that won't cost them a dime. And I'm working with One Loudon now to hopefully execute that here in the next couple of weeks. But that's just my thing is I don't want any of that hanging over my head. Well, I love that idea. And certainly capital can be misused and people can not appreciate the bootstrapping that goes on around them. And, and again, back to those small business owners, how much they stand to lose if it doesn't work out. I think the other thing that's true in this time period is we have been supported by the Fed with PPP loans and idle loans. And my question around that, well, that's not just a comment, really. I think the other thing that's happened with small businesses in this period is for some people, it's the first time they've ever had access to capital. Now, it may have been in the form of a forgiving loan, but for many women and minorities, it's not easy to get capital if you need it. So this was a chance to actually get capital. So I just think this time period, when we look back on it, may have helped some businesses survive that never would have survived. So it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. So when did you first become aware of money and what do you wish you'd been taught about money as you were growing up? So I came, when I grew up, my family had no money. I mean, it, it's on a kind of an age-old story, I guess, but it was a family of eight, my two parents and my six of us kids. My dad worked four jobs and his full-time job. I think his full-time job paid $16,000 a year trying to raise that many kids in upstate New York. They never, I mean, I love my parents to death. My dad's no longer with us. My mom still is. I don't feel that they ever really taught me or my siblings the true value of a dollar or the true value of saving a dollar. And I wish they had, but they never had to say, you've got a thousand dollars now, this is what you should do with it. You know, cause we never really had a thousand dollars. So it was just kind of a, we all had to kind of learn on our own and through not trial and error, but just kind of learning the hard way through hard knocks. We just, we learned that, you know, buying a fancy car is Cheryl and I were talking about that the other day that, or no, I'm sorry, it was me and my daughter were talking about that the other, the other day that we're both kind of the, 
you know, we buy used cars all the time and they're good, they're reliable and they're sometimes a little bit pricey, but you know, the fancy car doesn't really mean anything to us because it gets us from point A to point B, you know, experiences are more important than, you know, monetary things. And, you know, I have a laptop, the laptop I'm using right now that I'm talking to you on is nine years old. So and it still does better than most PCs. It's a Mac, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I, I wish I would have saved more when I was a kid. When I was, you know, 18 years old, I was making more than most kids my age working at a grocery store. For some reason, they paid about a dollar more an hour than minimum wage. And that seemed like a million dollars. And But I wish I would have put more money away. But it was a little bit later in life where I kind of learned that and made some changes and, and it turned out okay. Well, and you're making a really good point because I feel like had you known at 18 the time value of money, you would have saved some of that. And knowing what you know today, especially having lived as a business owner, it's not rocket science. It just does need to be talked about and taught. It's nothing you can't grasp. Look at what, I mean, you're running a business with essentially no money education when you were young. And so it can be learned. Yeah. And I had a, uh, I moved to San Diego when I was 21 and moved in with some guy who was probably 10 years older than me. And uh, he was a business guy, worked for Motorola. His name was Rich. And I remember him talking to me about an IRA. And, I'm, and I remember him saying, man, just take all your money and sock it into an IRA, sock it into an IRA. And I'm like, what are you talking about, you old man? What's wrong with you? And and it's funny because he and I are on Facebook, Facebook friends sometimes. And I reminded him of that. And he's like, yeah, I don't remember that. But, but I kind of wish I would have, you know, said, okay, maybe there's something to this. Let me look into it. I mean, that was 40 years ago. So but yeah, it's a lesson learned, that's for sure. So I have a 2020 version of that as you as we wrap up. Uh, this is the year when digital assets will become on the radar of every American. So we're talking about cryptocurrencies as we move from paper and coin money, the coins that you hold in your hands, as it were. So mark this time. And uh, this is a time to get familiar with those. And of course, as an advisor, we're trying to help people get familiar with those. But this is another one of those pinnacle times where a child growing up today will be a digital native and they will understand digital currencies and assets. But someone your age, my age and our children's age in their 30s needs to get up to speed. Yeah, very true. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I know my daughter wants to talk to you and we've talked about that a little bit. So I want to set that up as well. So we'll do. Yeah. Thank you, Dan, for your time, your insights and your wisdom. We wish you continued happiness, success and great health. If you want to learn more about Dan and the work he's doing to help others enjoy fabulous food, go to eat loco.org. That's E-A-T-L-O-C-O.org. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Take care. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.